This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey everyone, welcome back to a brand new episode of Nutshell Politics this week. My name is Dr. Justin Kinney and I will be your charming host as we dive into the second half of a series that I'm doing on economic models. Uh, now this is a little bit more of a, an academic topic, more theory based here than I've done recently, which I've been focusing more on current events and that sort of thing. But I think these are really important concepts to understand. Uh, last week we talked about two economic models, one called uh, economic nationalism, which I, I think I called at the time mercantilism. We also had something called state capitalism. And so I talked about what those two were. Uh, mercantilism is one that has kind of gone uh, away over the last you know, couple centuries, really. Uh, it was really common back in like the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, but it's really been, been kind of defunct ever since. You see elements of it still in today's world, uh, but as an entire model, it doesn't really exist anymore, although it was really useful for the United States in our early years, kind of up until World War One or so. Now, we also did state capitalism. That's kind of a, a relatively new model. Again, it has elements that go back a ways, but we're talking mostly about kind of the model that modern-day China has, and as, as well as a little bit with uh, modern-day Russia. And so just as a quick overview of those, mercantilism is a theory that basically says you trade if it serves state interest and it's building wealth for the state overall. It's kind of a zero-sum game sort of model. And so they really are heavily focused on exporting, and they really try to minimize imports so that they can develop the industries at home. State capitalism was one that where you kind of have a, a hybrid model where it's kind of capitalistic at the international level. There's lots of international trade to compete on kind of the global stage. But at the local domestic level, there is a lot more government interference, oppression, influence, at the, um, including up to like political freedom, civil rights, and things like that. And the idea is that they want to benefit from world globalization, but they still want to have main, main, or they still want to maintain a lot of control at the local level. And so there's high state control over over even manufacture and exports, but they do show some elements of capitalistic policies in terms of their international trade. Now, this week, we're going to be doing something that's probably a little bit more exciting because these are models that are in the news more, re more readily. Uh, we're going to be doing kind of a, a capitalism versus socialism discussion. And so we're going to talk about these two big models that are very prevalent in the world today. And I'm going to start by kicking off with capitalism for a variety of reasons, which will become clear in a little bit. But uh, capitalism is an economic system that you find primarily in the West in the world, although there are plenty of cases of this. Uh, the United States is probably the biggest and best example of capitalism, although you do see it in plenty of other countries, too. But basically, the entire model is built around the idea of private ownership of the kind of the means of production and industry. And they're allowed to operate those businesses and industries for profit. And so you have a lot of different characteristics that kind of come up in capitalism, private property, uh, wage labor, kind of a voluntary exchange of labor and wages, competitive markets, free markets, uh, a market-based economy, competition for goods and services. And really the idea that trade and commercialization or commercialism in particular 
need to be protected from government intervention. They should be allowed to kind of just run freely. And this, the argument goes, uh, capitalism, by allowing people kind of free reign to do what they want, seeking profit, it allows for private individuals and private companies to take more risks in order to uh, to better compete. It allows them to, it actually incentivizes them to innovate and to expand their production. And so the argument continues to say that essentially by, by doing so, this creates competition. And in a competitive market, competition drives standards high. Uh, and, and this means that in a capitalistic system, the overall standard of living should be driven higher because companies are competing with one another to provide better goods and better services, which necessitates them uh, creating higher standards. And as they kind of continually go back and forth and back and forth and push each other higher, the overall standard of living for that country in that region uh, continues to go up. And as I said, the United States kind of leads the way in promoting this policy worldwide. Uh, but economic uh, liberalism is actually another term for it, uh, is capitalism, economic liberalism, basically the same thing, have existed under a lot of different forms of government in different places and time. You have, um, say, Western Europe in the kind of the, lead, the years leading up to the Industrial Revolution. Uh, you have roots that go all the way back to kind of the early Renaissance period when you had kind of even before countries, you had city states like Florence that kind of pushed some of these things. Uh, you had ag agrarian forms of capitalism in like, say, England in the 17th century. Uh, actually, the the doctrine we talked about last week, mercantilism, has been seen as kind of a, a spinoff of capitalism or as kind of an origin of modern day capitalism. Uh, you had the Industrial Revolution with David Hume and Adam Smith. And then you have kind of modern day capitalism that we see in the United States, as well as other countries in, in the Western world, mostly. Now, you do see kind of a relationship between capitalism and democracy. And so this, this relationship is kind of a contentious area in political and scientific theory. But you do see a fair amount of proponents of one also be proponents of the other. There's a lot of overlap here. Now, one of the biggest theorists in terms of capitalism in kind of the 21st century or the 20th century and kind of modern day is a man by the name of Milton Friedman. You've probably come across some of his work if you do, if you've really looked into this at all. He's one of the biggest supporters of the idea of capitalism. And he basically makes the argument that capitalism promotes freedoms, particularly political freedoms, but other types of freedoms as well, because he says that as capitalism is allowed to be competitive, economic power and political power are almost necessarily separated. And so economics and politics don't intermingle as much and, and really allows for political freedom to, uh, to, to grow and to flourish. Now, we have seen, I should mention, uh, some capitalistic systems that are not under democracies. Uh, they're under political regimes that were much more authoritarian. Uh, for instance, uh, Singapore had a very successful open market economy at one point because they were very competitive and kind of a, a very business uh, climate. But uh, its brand of government was essentially a one-party rule system and it wasn't big on like freedom of speech and freedom of oppression and things like that it had a government press where the government controlled what the press said and we've seen this pop up in other places as well there was a, a ruler in chile whose name was pinochet uh, he he had a kind of a, a capitalistic system that led to economic growth and there was a lot of capitalistic models there but this was essentially a military dictatorship kind of in the 70s and 80s 
Uh, we also have the the Communist Party of India, of, uh, sorry, of Indonesia that actually had some capitalism uh, during a man by the name of Suharto's reign, which was back in kind of the actually he was he was in office for a long time, kind of late 60s all the way up into the 90s. But he was essentially seen as a dictator, but he allowed for capitalism to kind of expand into Indonesia. So it's we don't necessarily see uh, capitalism and democracy run together, but you do frequently see them go together. But it's not uh, always every single time uh, that they are are united. Now, if you're looking at a country and wondering, okay, is this a capitalist country? There's a few different elements you can really look for as evidence of this. Uh, and so a couple of things. Uh, first would be the idea of, of market economy. So a free market, a laissez-faire capitalism, laissez-faire economies. Uh, essentially here, the idea is, are the markets regulated heavily through the government? Markets are, are a dominant force around the world and pretty much every market ever, uh, especially in modern world, does have some regulation. So we have never really seen a true or a truly free market, like 100% free market economy. But you can look at it and say, you know, are these are these economies you know free to compete with one another? Do you have industries that are dominated by multiple companies that are see, always seeking to outdo one another? And really just how much overall competition and freedom do you see in capitalistic theory? Because to a capitalist, that competition leads to innovation. It leads to actually lower prices as well. I don't think I mentioned that earlier. So you can have more affordable goods in addition to better goods. And this competition is really necessary for, for higher standards of living. And so it actually encourages competition between companies. And so it says basically that the more government intervenes, the less you can have this competition. Uh, now, as I said, pretty much every market in the world does have some level of regulation on this, in particular things like uh, maybe a social welfare program, because capitalism kind of necessarily, when you have competition, someone's going to lose that competition. And how do you compensate the losers you know, in some capacity so that they don't fall into poverty? You can have some sort of social welfare or safety net that can be put into place. You also have things like a government regulation designed to protect the environment, Capitalism. One of one of the biggest criticisms of capitalism is that it incentivizes exploitation of people and exploitation of resources in the environment, uh, in the hopes of finding cheaper goods so that they can better compete. And this is something that gets criticized a lot about capitalism. And so frequently, actually almost almost universally, even in countries that are very free market like the United States, you do have regulation that deals with protecting the environment and what companies can and can't do in terms of say like dumping waste um, or, or how much they can really reap from the resources around them. Now, one of the other elements that you really look for in a capitalistic theory model is a profit motive. And this is basically the idea that the reason that businesses exist is not to provide goods, it's to turn a profit, to make money. And a capitalistic theory in particular that uh, kind of getting back into more political science talk, the rational choice theory is this idea that individuals tend to pursue what's in their best interest. Businesses are ultimately run by individuals. Therefore, businesses seek to benefit themselves or their shareholders by maximizing profit. And capitalist theory basically says that having a motive for profit ensures that resources ultimately are used efficiently because why would a business do something inefficiently if as long as they know there's a more efficient route they're going to use the pro the resources as efficiently as possible uh, and this is ultimately a, a good thing 
And then the other big element that you really want to look for if you're trying to decide if something is a capitalistic system or not is the idea of private property. In, in other words, does the state own property? Does the state own businesses? Do they own industries? Do they own the, the means of production? Or is this something that is owned privately by individuals, companies, shareholders, and those sorts of things? Uh, now, historically, capitalism has this kind of raw ability to produce economic growth in terms of things like GDP, uh, standard of living. And this was actually one of the big key components of Adam Smith and his, his theories where he said we should let the free market control, ultimately control industry and control production. And we do see world GDP uh, since the beginning of kind of the industrial revolution when capitalism took over, uh, we've seen global GDP skyrocket. Uh, and this increase in GDP does pretty much strongly correlate with the emergence of kind of a world system based around capitalism. Uh, just as an example here, uh, and I'm drawing this from Martin Wolf's book called Why Globalization Works. There was from the year 1000 to the year about 1820, the world economy about went up by about six times or 600 percent uh, now this was a faster rate than the population growth so we did see kind of an increase in income of about 50 percent over this time period and so that was in 820 years we saw about a 50 percent increase in income over the next 170 years so 820 years was the first one 170 years was the second was the second term the world economy grows 50 fold way faster than population growth, way faster than it was growing before. And people basically saw a nine times or nine fold increase in their overall income. And so in a, a period that was uh, way shorter, we saw a much faster income growth. So across the world, we've really seen a, a link between overall GDP and capitalism as an economic model in the world. Now in capitalistic kind of structure, the idea of supply and demand is really big as well. And basically says that when you have a competitive market, the the price of any sort of good or service will kind of bounce back and forth and vary until the, the demand equals the supply. Uh, until that point where the consumers are demanding a product kind of matches how much it is, how, how much it is being produced. And so this creates kind of an equilibrium point. And this idea of supply and demand goes back, I mean, at least as far as the 14th century, we, but we've seen it also in uh, John Locke in the 17th century, Adam Smith in the 18th century, in his book, The Wealth of Nations. Uh, we've seen it kind of across the 19th century as well, when you got into the, what's called, what was called marginalist theory. I won't go in too far into that right now, but this idea of supply and demand and kind of having a, a, a very low role of government in a capitalist system goes back quite a ways. Now, also, just a couple other notes before we close out this part. I know I'm kind of rushing through this. There's so much here. Uh, this could probably be multiple episodes. I know I'm kind of rushing into it. But there are actually a wide variety of types of capitalism, depending on where you live. And in fact, uh, you'd probably argue that there is no country in the world that is truly 100% capitalist. Because, like say, even here in the United States, which I've mentioned, you know, we still have a welfare system. We still have things like minimum wage, which is kind of a government-instituted regulation on what companies are allowed to pay. You also have safety standards here. OSHA is kind of a big thing in the United States that's kind of protecting workers' rights and workers' safety. And in, even to the point where like money comes from the government. I mean, that's, that's still a form of control that the government and the state has over 
uh, the economy. And so you pretty much don't find any country in the world that is truly pure capitalist. And to finish out this seg segment, I want to really talk about some of the criticisms of capitalism, uh, because as with any kind of political system or economic system, nothing's perfect. And in fact, I think it was uh, Winston Churchill who said, you know, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. And I think you can kind of apply that principle to capitalism as well. And capitalist proponents would say something very similar, uh, where, you know, there are some very valid critiques of capitalism. This is partly why you don't find pure capitalistic models anymore because capitalism has been associated while they do create a massive rise in things like GDP. Uh, they also kind of create a social inequality. This is the income gap or the wealth gap uh, because the distribution of wealth and profit and money and power gets kind of distributed unequally across the system. And as I said, I mentioned a couple of times, it also kind of incentivizes things like exploitation of workers, uh, paying them less, putting them in harmful scenarios or damaging the environment because you can create a cheaper product that way if you say underpay your workers. And this is kind of what we see in, in some cases. And, you know, for instance, I don't mean to pick on Nike, but Nike has been in the news over the last couple decades basically because of the their really cheap labor that they have found overseas. And so, you know, capitalism rewards that type of behavior by using things like sweatshops uh, because it creates an ability for them to, to build a cheaper product. Uh, and so pure capitalism has some some components that you might consider immoral, uh, or at least incentivizes people to maybe pursue immoral ideas for profit in the end. And so as we'll get to kind of after the break, this is where a lot of socialist theorists will pick at capitalism because they say that capitalism ultimately is, is focusing on prioritizing profit, prioritizing wealth among a few hands at the top over kind of the need of the community, the need of the society, the need, need of the individuals and the workers. And so the workers are not really being included or thought about in this system. And this is why you tend to see, even in very capitalistic systems, things like social welfare nets uh, to help kind of compensate the losers. And in fact, capitalists will, will hit back at this criticism and say, you know, capitalism creates so much more GDP and wealth. We can use some of that GDP and wealth to kind of funnel back down to the overall system and allow for things like worker retraining. So if they're in an industry that fails because they were not able to compete, we can train them and get them into another industry and actually help them. Because when you create that kind of inequality, there are going to be people who necessarily lose. And so capitalist theorists and capitalist proponents will say, hey, we, we can use some of this excess wealth that we're creating and kind of turn it back around and use it to compensate those who have lost. Also, capitalists will say things like, uh, in kind of defense of them against this theory, or against this criticism, I mean, they will say things like, it's true that we create inequality, but overall, everyone goes up, right? And so even the poor go up. And we see this kind of example pop up in the United States, where even among some of the poorest in our community, people who are, say, below the poverty line, you'll frequently find that they have things like laptops and iPhones, or you know they will live in a place with air with air conditioning, uh, running water, indoor plumbing. Which you know if you look at say other parts of the world, that's not always the case. And so they will point to and say yes, there may be a large income disparity between the wealthy and the poor. But even the poor are not that poor. And that's kind of an argument that would be frequently be made by a capitalist. And further too, as I kind of hinted at, 
uh, there is this moral element too. And so you'll frequently see a lot of religions, including a lot of the major ones, a lot of Christian uh, sects, Judaic sects, Islam, uh, they, they oppose some of these practices that you tend to see in capitalist societies, economic concerns that a Christian might look at and, or a Muslim or a, or a Jew might look at, the idea of creating winners and losers to the point where people might be being exploited is something that would be considered immoral. And so we tend to see some pushback, even from some faiths on the theory as well. Now, that was a very, very, very broad overview of capitalism. And I know I missed, I mean, I skipped over probably at least half of my notes because I know this is, we're already going into, you know, 20 minutes of this and I haven't even started talking about socialism yet. Uh, so you have to forgive me if I skipped over your particular favorite I idea or concept of capitalism. The goal is not to talk about it for an indefinite amount of time. It's really just to provide an overview of what capitalism is and why we push it uh, here in this country, but also why some people tend to criticize it as well. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and just take a quick commercial break. Uh, again, I apologize. I didn't get to nearly like even about half of what I was hoping to, but we're going to jump into and talk a little bit about socialism on the other side of the commercial break. So stick with me and I'll be back with you guys in just a minute. And welcome back. Thanks so much for sticking with me through that commercial break. Uh, we're going to jump right back in. Uh, before the commercial break, we were talking about capitalism. And so I want to flip the script for the rest of the episode. And we're going to talk socialism and really what that is and what that means uh, going forward and what it's meant historically as well. So socialism is kind of a, it's a tough thing to define because over the course of the history, there's been kind of a range of different economic systems that have called themselves socialist, but at its basic, most core principle, there is so, some sort of social or state ownership of kind of the means of production that kind of encapsulates socialism at its very core. And so basically what that means is that the workers kind of self-regulate, self-manage the businesses, and that any sort of uh, industry is owned by society as a whole, as opposed to being owned by individuals. Now, practically, a lot of times this takes the, the form of government control, government regulation. And so you see uh, socialist elements that have really raised the, the level of regulation of industry and business, which is kind of a practical look at, at what socialism uh, could be in, in the real world. And really what's at the core, though, of socialism is in kind of the modern times is that it's really grown out of being kind of an anti-capitalist movement. Uh, so capitalism, as we talked about before the break, is all about free markets. But socialism looks at free markets very differently than the capitalist does uh, because they, they basically say that the free market produces what's called wealth disparity. Or sometimes you'll hear this called the income gap or the wealth gap, uh, the gap between the wealthy and the, and the poor. And so they say that this income inequality, another term for it, is ultimately worse than any lower but equal government-enforced standard. They also look at free markets and say things like, you know, the free market system incentivizes the exploitation of workers, the exploitation of the environment. I've talked a little bit about this before the break as some of the critiques of capitalism, but socialism really hits on this because they're basically under Karl Marx and his Marxist ideas which are kind of a, a 
baseline understanding of socialism. They argue that in the goal of finding lower prices so that you're better able to compete or better quality of goods or whatever, you know, you can ultimately lower prices by doing things like paying your workers less or abusing the workers or abusing the environment and, and uh, exploiting resources in that sense. And so it basically argues that capitalism is or it incentivizes exploitation. And so socialists really hit on these two key points, uh, which are interesting because they're both really based around the idea of capitalism, but just kind of anti-capitalism rather than kind of forming their own entity. But they have kind of used that and spawned off and created a whole ideology for the economy around these two principles. And so they really f focus a lot on things like equality. They believe equality is ultimately the, the highest form of society that you can have. That's, that's one of the highest values that a society can have is equality. And this would be both equality in terms of the opportunity, but also equality of outcome. And this is, this is something where it really differs from capitalism. Capitalism claims one of the most primary values you can hold is freedom. Socialism claims that equality is the highest value you can have. Uh, you have the government ownership of business and trade. Uh, that's, again, more of a practical element of this. Frequently, you, you'll, you'll hear socialists talk about this and be like, oh, we're not for government ownership. It's, it's societal ownership. It's social ownership. The people own it, not the government. But, uh, you know, practically speaking, this has not ever been shown to, to work. Every, every place that socialism has been tried, the practical outcome of it is that government has to step in to enforce this. Through that, they you know create heavy regulation and they end up owning a lot of it as well. Uh, and this is one of the, actually we'll get to it later, but this is one of the big criticisms of socialism is that the basic underlying principle of social ownership simply doesn't hold up in the real world uh, where ultimately the government has to step in to take over. So we've seen several societies try to implement socialism and they all, the government ultimately ends up taking over uh, the ownership of businesses and trade and you end up having pretty heavy oppression and, and control at the state level. Now to a socialist in kind of an ideal society, what you'd have is you'd have some sort of worker cooperative collective or something that has the control over production. You even have some, there's even some socialist models that do allow individuals to own things, but you know, through government regulated high taxes and very strict controls, you know, that, that ownership is kind of in name only. But as, as I said, the um, principal value or concern of socialism is that equality. And so they focus very heavily on how can we equitably distribute wealth and resources from the rich to the poor. Uh, and so they do this out of fairness. You'll hear them talk about what's fair a lot. Um, and you'll hear the phrase an even playing field, things like that. Again, both opportunity and outcome here. And so in order to enforce this, what they've found is that the state ultimately ends up becoming the primary employer during this time. Because if you go through a time of like an economic downturn, the socialist government can kind of force hiring to raise the ultimate level of employment. And ultimately what this results in then is the state or the government intervening into the labor and capital market. And further than what this means is that let's say you have a business or a corporation of some kind and you're building some sort of product and so you have like the assembly line and the, the factory all the way up to the, the people who kind of run and manage the business and any money made by that corporation or business to a socialist should belong to the people who make the item, not to the people who run the business, or it should be equitably distributed in that sense. So if you if you run like say a pencil making company, 
the people who actually put the lead into the wood pencil should be compensated equivalently with the people who run the factory and manage the factory. Uh, and basically, so the, the money, any sort of money or profit made belongs to the workers, not to some sort of group of private ownership elite at the top. And so they, they look at it in that sense. Now, the way this kind of practically works out is, is in one of two ways. One I've already really talked about, that's the idea that uh, the state helps the society own the means of making wealth through regulation and taxes and these sorts of things. So that would be the government controlling things. Or you have kind of that worker-owned, cooperative, collective, where management and workers are sharing with one another based on you know, their interests. And in the long run, what this frequently will look like then too is the concept of, of not having any real private property. Now, there are some variations, as I mentioned, that you can have private property in, but through regulation and taxes and that sort of thing, it kind of ends up being a name only. So most of the time when we're talking socialism, that means there's no real such thing as private property. Everything is collectively owned. And frequently you'll see socialism talked about in terms of theory as being kind of in between capitalism and communism. And so I want to talk a little bit about communism and how this fits in, because frequently people will mistake the two. You'll have people talk about communism, mean socialism, uh, and you'll have people talk about socialism, mean communism, kind of back and forth. And they are, there are a lot of similarities, and they both kind of arose during the Industrial Revolution together. And they both have certain ways of looking at the world that, that are equal to each other. And I want to talk about that first, but I really want to then get into kind of what the differences between the two are. Uh, so both communism and socialism are built kind of on the idea that the individual contributes based on ability, institution gets centralized and controlled by either society or government, you know, in other words, taking private business out of the marketplace. And in both cases, the government is, is really key and have, has a really large role in any sort of investment or planning and those sorts of things. But there are some very important differences that we need to talk about. And kind of the most fundamental difference here is that under communism, individuals are compensated or paid based on their needs. So in like a, a full-on communist system, the, you wouldn't really have any money. You'd simply be given whatever, whatever the government thinks you need in terms of food, clothing, accommodation. Now, socialism is not quite that far. Now, you do have a lot of people who will argue, and I, and I would say fairly, that communism and socialism are are intricately linked to the point where communism is kind of the natural outgrowth of socialism. But in a pure socialist society, people are, are compensated more based on individual contribution. And so it's more about the labor. And so they'll look at it as, you know, again, we'll use the pencil factory. The people who make the pencils are compensated. And somebody who is faster and makes more pencils could be, could be more compensated than the person who's slower. But ultimately, it's the ones who are contributing and building that are compensated more equivalently. Uh, so you, so there's a lot more equity there, but you can still have some difference in compensation or pay based on contribution. But this kind of gets at what I would say is, is one of the biggest differences between the two is that socialism is at its core simply an economic philosophy, whereas communism takes that and pushes it further where it becomes both economic and political. And so it really hits more on the idea of government being the central owner, government being the decision maker, and those sorts of things. Uh, socialism is just not quite as far down the, the spectrum as a communism philosophy would be.
uh, further, just as one more example of this, communism sees the complete abolishment, complete getting rid of, of any sort of class distinctions. There's no such thing as middle class or upper class or lower class in a full communist society. Socialism sees, can, can, you can still have classes like that, but the um, there's a, a definite diminishment here. There's still some capacity for people to achieve more wealth than others and to create a, a little bit of a class distinction, but it's a lot less than you would say in, say, a capitalist system. Now, before we move on a little bit further, let's take uh, several steps back. I want to talk a little bit about the history of socialism. Uh, so socialism, the concepts have been around for a very long time, going back centuries, but really the first one to call themselves socialists really were in the mid-1800s. There was a Welshman named Robert Owen, uh, and he and his followers started calling themselves socialists in the 1840s. And so he is kind of seen as a, a pioneer of the socialist movement, basically arguing his early writings that the workers should own the companies that they work for, that, that it should, there should not be some sort of owner who owns the companies. The workers themselves who are, are doing it would own the companies and then they split the profits amongst themselves. And so he actually set up his own factory that tried to do this in Scotland back in the uh, mid-1800s. Over time, though, these ideas have developed further and further, and you have people like Karl Marx. He's probably the one who is best known for being kind of the creator of the theory of socialism, and then he actually takes it further and goes into communism as well. Uh, his book, The Communist Manifesto, is all about kind of the relationships between capitalism, socialism, and communism. And uh, his partner, Friedrich Engels, kind of co-wrote the book with him. And so the two of them are kind of responsible for what you might think of as how we view socialism. Now, their book actually came out just shortly after Robert Owen. Uh, Owen, I think, was in 1841 or so. Communist Manifesto came out less than a decade later. And it's a relatively short book. It's, it's really interesting. Um, and really, they talk about kind of class struggles, some of the problems that they think exist within capitalism and how they might solve them. And so Karl Marx and Marxist theory have been um, kind of seen as the fathers of modern day socialism. And we, so whenever we see this kind of play out, there's a couple different variations on this. You have situations like China, which uh, has only more recently started to embrace the capitalistic elements at the international level with trade. And so you see the kind of socialist elements on the ground level there, domestic and locally with heavy government regulation of, of businesses and things. Uh, so that would be one form of socialism. You also have, say, the Soviet Union, which was considered very socialist in a lot of ways. Uh, Venezuela was another one where you had government control and government ownership of business. Uh, obviously, they have been going under undergoing some rough times lately and we can talk about that in a minute when we get to criticisms of socialism cuba would be another one but you also have kind of a, a variation i want to talk about this because it's a little different you have something called democratic socialism and this is something that's kind of popped up here in the united states a lot recently with people like uh, bernie sanders and alexandria ocasio-cortez ocasio-cortez is the the 29 year old female congresswoman uh who recently one election in uh, kind of the Bronx and Queens area in New York. And so I want to talk about what that is and what it kind of looks like and really what it means to be a democratic socialist. But also I want to look at a couple of their countries that they point out as being democratic socialist, you know, like Norway, Sweden, and we'll talk about whether or not they actually are. So democratic socialism is a variation on socialism in which 
you embrace that kind of socially owned economy, but alongside kind of a, a political democracy of sorts. Uh, and they, so a democratic socialist would say that capitalism ultimately is incompatible with ideas of you know, equality. And, and so there's a lot more focus on using democratic control of institutions in kind of the marketplace to really focus on allowing workers to self-manage themselves. Now, they do kind of get rid of the end goal of kind of a, a full-on socialist society. And so they kind of try to build that middle ground between the two, which... I mean, I think it depends who you ask, but it may or may or may not work. Um, but they're trying to create that some sort of middle ground. And so nowadays we see democratic socialism being kind of used to refer to any sort of political movement that is trying to build their economy based on economic democracy, but focused on the working class. Now, this is actually something that's very difficult, uh, this definition, because I, as I was just doing research for this, I found, say, a dozen different scholars who all have very radically different definitions for the term. But I think at their core, they have a lot of the same goals as socialism, the idea of compensating workers more more fairly. Again, there's that word they use fair a lot. They really care about, about things being fair. And to a democratic socialist, too, they really try to draw a distinction between themselves and, say, true socialism by pointing to the government under which they are implementing it. So they'll look at, say, Venezuela. I'll just use them as an example. There's obviously several, but Venezuela has a history of absolutely horrific oppression. There is uh, an authoritarian dictatorship in power there, and it's created probably the largest refugee crisis that the the Western Hemisphere has ever seen. And so a, a democratic socialist looks at this and they, and they draw a couple of distinctions and they say, okay, we do agree with a lot of the principles of this, but there are a couple of things that make us different. In particular, the big thing that they, well, actually I say there's two things that they really focus on. Uh, first is that they claim that they're not as concerned with the government controlling means of production or, or socially controlling means of production. They just want more regulation and more spending on the so-called welfare state. Uh, and so they'll point to a lot of the Scandinavian countries like Sweden, which have very large welfare states, but are still fairly wealthy and free. Now, I'm not gonna, we're actually gonna get to the Scandinavian example in a second. Uh, but the second big distinction that they make is that they point out that all of these early ex experiments, as they'll call them in socialism like Venezuela, were done by dictatorships or authoritarian regimes. And so they still try to remain committed to a sort of multi-party setup in a democracy where there are elections. And so they'll argue that any sort of abuses of power that you would see under, say, an authoritarian regime ultimately get kind of weeded out through elections and competition at the electoral level. And so they, they try to draw these two major distinctions between themselves and pretty much every failed socialist system that's out there from the Soviet Union to Venezuela and the often oppression, poverty, and mass murder that has taken place under a lot of these regimes to an enormous scale. Uh, the Soviet Union is, is one of the most brutal regimes of all time, and they had largely socialist policies. Uh, but again, the democratic socialists will say, well, if we can implement some of those policies but use a democratic electoral system, we can help weed out some of the corruption and the oppression that we saw under, under that. So that's kind of where they're coming from on the democratic socialism front. So they, they still embrace political democracy, but really large welfare states and more government control and regulation of industry 
and again, in a way that they argue will protect the workers better. Now let's jump in and talk about Scandinavia uh, because Scandinavia is frequently used as an example that democratic socialists will point to as kind of models for what they want to implement. And the reason they do this is because they have very large welfare states. They have uh, massive welfare programs, but are still quite wealthy countries. And I'm, I'm going to use Sweden as the example. You can do the same thing with Norway, Iceland, uh, Denmark. They all have very similar uh, models in place. But democratic socialists will frequently point to these countries. Now, this is actually a bit of a problem because none of these countries are particularly socialist. Uh, now, they do have large welfare states, but they actually combine that with some very low levels of government regulation, uh, particularly on the trade level. They're very open to international trade. Uh, just to, as, as an example of this, most of the Nordic countries actually are, are pretty much on par with the United States in terms of economic liberty. And so on the economy side, particularly in business, these uh, countries have very low government regulation, which is not what people like Bernie Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez are pushing. Another example of this is that uh, none of those Nordic countries, the Scandinavian countries, have any sort of government-mandated minimum wage. This is another thing that Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders and a lot of people in that kind of democratic socialist camp keep pushing. We need minimum wage, minimum wage, raise the minimum wage, $15 an hour, $20 an hour, and on and on. But the examples that they point to, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, etc., they don't have that. It's, it's a different system there. And in fact, what democratic socialists here in the United States and a lot of places are pushing actually go well beyond the level of government control that you see in a lot of Western European nations. So it's really, I would say, incorrect for democratic socialists to point to countries like Sweden and say, this is what we're pushing because the policies they're pushing don't always match up with what you see in those countries. They just really like the idea of the large welfare state. Now, what this all means is that countries like Norway, Sweden, Denmark are not technically socialist. They don't have, they do have high income taxes. They do have like very large, generous social welfare programs, but their economies are actually very free market. And this is where I was really pushing a second ago. You know, Denmark is something like the 10th most economically free country in the world. Uh, Sweden's top 20. Norway, I think, is top 25. They have very large and thriving private sectors, they all have very open markets. And the problem, I think, gets even worse for democratic socialists using these as examples is that most of these countries didn't make their wealth on the policies that they currently have. Sweden actually became so wealthy in kind of the mid 20th century. So we're talking mid, mid 1900s. And they actually had a very capitalist system at the time with very low tax rates, very low tax rates. Uh, and in fact, they didn't implement the high tax rates and social programs until the 1970s. But most of Sweden's wealth was actually built before they implemented the higher taxes and social programs. And they actually became so wealthy that they were able to create large welfare programs. And so they became wealthy under capitalist models and then transitioned to more socialist models when they had the wealth to do so. And actually what, what happened with, say, Sweden is that once they implemented social programs and high tax rates in the 1970s, the, the economy all of a sudden started to under underperform. And we saw things like unemployment start to grow. Uh, and so what we've seen actually just recently, and this is actually something that a lot of democratic socialists, including Ocasio-Cortez, don't don't even mention is that Sweden has been moving away from socialist models. They've been privatizing 
previously socialized sectors. So they're privatizing education. They're, they've been privatizing healthcare. They've actually been cutting tax rates. They've been making their welfare program uh, less expansive to the point where it's actually pretty difficult to get into the welfare system in a lot of these countries uh, because you have to have lived there for a certain number of time, a certain number of years. You have to be a citizen in a lot of cases. You have to have worked to put into the system before you can get anything out of it. It's actually quite difficult to become a part of these welfare systems. So while the welfare system offers a lot, it doesn't offer a lot to a lot of people. And so again, this is something that I think uh, is why democratic socialists can't really use these models. There is one other thing that I think is applicable to the case of Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders here in the United States, although it may not apply to some other countries that want to implement this as well. But the United States is a very different country than Scandinavia. Scandinavia is a very homogenous area, racially, ethnically, historically, socially, just in terms of their kind of levels of cohesion, social trust, they're incredibly high. Whereas America is frequently seen as a melting pot. Uh, this, as I know it's a little bit of a cliche, but the idea that America is is much more diverse and heterogeneous than a lot of these countries, which means that America is a much larger country with much lower levels of social trust and social cohesion. And so countries like Norway, Denmark, and Sweden just aren't good models that can be pointed to. Now, I, again, this is a nonpartisan podcast. I'm not trying to bash democratic socialism as an ideology or a theory, but in, just in practice, we have not seen this play out. And the countries they point to as examples are not good examples of this. Uh, and in fact, countries like, say, Sweden, are I would not even really call them democratic socialist. Instead, they're, they're really more capitalist, but just... Uh, I forget where I read this, but there was a term I saw that I liked called compassionate capitalists. But essentially what that means is that the Nordic countries are a very poor case study for democratic socialists to point to. Now, socialism, particularly in the United States, but in a lot of countries, is a very controversial term, a very controversial idea and ideology, uh, largely because of the history that goes along with it, from the Soviet Union to the, the various Soviet republics that existed, Cuba, Venezuela, etc. It's been very criticized and, I would say, controversial to the point where, um, just as an example, when we did a poll of Americans in 1942. They asked, you know, would socialism be a good thing for the country? So this is 1942. This is really before the Cold War. And so you have 25% of Americans said socialism would be a good thing for this country. Now, when you start to move into today, there was actually a poll by Gallup just this year in 2019. That number 25 has risen to 43% of Americans who believe socialism would be a good thing for this country. And that is really driven by that kind of 18 to 24 range. Uh, there was a, a second survey that was done that basically found over 60% of people in that 18 to 24 prefer the idea of socialism to capitalism. This is not broken down into like socialism versus democratic socialism, but the idea is that the people who have been around longer to remember the history of socialism in the Soviet Union and such frequently talk about socialism like it like it's um, this huge fear, whereas people who were not, the younger people, uh, seem to have a much more favorable view of the ideology. Now, we're going way over time today, and I, I feel like I really want to scratch the surface, and I actually feel a little bit bad about this because I, I really want to do these 
ideas much more justice than I probably did, but hopefully this gives you kind of an overview of them. Uh, now, I do want to emphasize, too, that in reality, most countries and most economic models fall somewhere between capitalism and socialism. Uh, you don't really have any countries that are pure one way or the other. And so in reality, most countries are somewhere on the spectrum in between those two polar ends. But ultimately, I kind of want to finish this by saying that both capitalism and socialism uh, have plenty of critics, uh, capitalists mostly on the idea of income inequality and uh, the incentives that it creates for exploitation. Socialism has a lot of critics based on historical implementation. And in particular, too, there are some a lot of critics, I didn't even really talk about this earlier, that are very critical of the idea of redistributing wealth as a form of theft, basically taking what belongs to one person and giving it to another without uh, regard for for whether or not they deserve that. And so there's a lot of critics around socialism being essentially an immoral stance to take as it would amount to a, a sort of theft of taking money from, from one and giving it to another, often unwillingly. So both of these models do have plenty of proponents, plenty of critics as well. I, so I wanna just end by making that final point. With that, I think we're going to go ahead and close out the episode. Again, I, I feel like I barely even scratched the surface on these, barely did either of them justice. But hopefully it gives you kind of an, an overview of the understanding of why and what the proponents of each and the critics of each are trying to argue. Um, I didn't really get into whether or not I believe what I believe works and what I believe doesn't, but I do think that we need better understanding of what they are. Because even when, when you have in this country people like Ocasio-Cortez pointing to Sweden and saying that's a, a, a democratic socialist state, and it's really not, that shows just how pervasive this lack of understanding of, of these terms is i mean if even our government leaders pushing these ideas have no idea what they look like in practice i think that's a really dangerous dangerous thing to do and i would um, be very very cautious listening to anybody politician or otherwise who tries to explain that socialism or democratic socialism is inherent in these kind of scandinavian countries like sweden and norway and denmark etc uh, so be very, very cautious of Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Bernie Sanders, and some of these others who are pushing ideas that they clearly don't fully grasp themselves as to how it would actually play out and look. Um, but with that, we're going to go ahead and shut out, shut down the episode. So thanks so much for tuning in and listening. I, hopefully I'll be able to do another episode on this in the future where I can go into a lot more depth. Again, I, I apologize if I only barely touched on these issues, but we're way over time. So uh, thanks so much for tuning in and listening. If you want to get in touch with me, my Twitter handle is Justin R underscore Kinney. You can find me, hit that follow button. I really appreciate it. Build those follow numbers. Uh, if you'd like to get in contact with me on Facebook, I have an author page, J Robert Kinney. I write mystery novels. I have two mystery novels that are currently published, one called Precipice, which came out about three years ago, and one called Splintered State, which came out last November. So please go check both of those out. They're on Amazon under paperback and Kindle, and you can find those under the name J Robert Kinney. And find my Facebook page as well. Hit that subscribe button. Now, if you'd like to support me, support this podcast so that I can continue to do this and do what I enjoy with it. Uh, or if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hit me up. I'd be happy to talk with you more about that possibility. Or you can find my Patreon account online. I would appreciate checking that out if you're interested as well. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and close out the episode. So thanks so much for tuning in. And until next week, my name is Dr. Justin Kinney. This is Nutshell Politics. And I am out in three two one